Trump tends to pick fights in court that when he loses, he doesn't just lose for himself, he loses for the presidency. Devlin Barrett covers the FBI and Justice Department for The Post. He's been following the many legal investigations plaguing former President Donald Trump. Like, remember Trump's tax returns? The ones Democrats have wanted since the 2016 presidential campaign? Just last week, the Supreme Court finally cleared the way for Congress to get a hold of them. Devlin says this case about Trump's taxes could have implications that go way beyond the former president. But it's just one of many legal headaches Trump is facing right now. There is a school of thought among some lawyers that by losing these kinds of legal fights, Trump is actually eroding the long-term authority and power of the presidency itself. And I think that is another interesting way in which this case may have long-term effects that have nothing to do with Trump. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, November 29th. Today, the status of the many legal battles Trump faces as he mounts his 2024 campaign to return to the White House. Just before Thanksgiving, the Supreme Court denied Trump's request to block some of his tax returns from being released to a congressional committee. And it seems like there's been calls for these tax returns to be released for years. Devlin, can you bring us up to speed on where this Supreme Court ruling fits in to this long-running legal battle? Right. So it is a long-running legal battle, and it grew out of a long-running political battle from when Trump was a candidate. For many years, it's been a custom that presidential candidates, major presidential candidates, release their tax returns. But that's just a custom. Trump did not do that, claiming that he couldn't do so because of audits. To be clear, there's no reason an audit would prevent someone from releasing their taxes, but that was his argument. Every year they audit me, audit me, audit me. I will absolutely give my return, but I'm being audited now for two or three years, so I can't do it until the audit is finished. Fast forward several years of political fighting over that fact. The House Ways and Means Committee basically has the authority to ask for uh, those tax returns, and they did. We will review whether a president, vice president, or any candidate for this office should be required by law to make their tax return available to the public. In other words, we were asked the question, does the public have a need to know that a person seeking or holding the highest office in our country obeys the tax laws? And that's created the legal fight that uh, the Supreme Court refused to get into last week. And what the Supreme Court's decision essentially means is that the committee can get those returns. And the committee is seeking returns for the years he was president plus the year before he was president and the year after he was president because they say they want to see how his income may have changed, how the uh, auditing of his taxes may have changed by becoming a president. And how quickly could these tax returns potentially be released? And what is 
the plan from there? Once the committee gets these tax returns, what do they want to do with them? What can they do with them? Release can mean different things to different people. So we should be clear what the court decision means is that the Treasury Department can and will turn over Trump's tax returns to the committee. That doesn't automatically make them public. In fact, some folks have argued that the committee really isn't in a position to release the actual returns, but the committee could release reports or summaries of the information in the returns. But again, we're, we're in a little bit of uncharted territory here, so there are folks who argue that the committee would be within its rights to release the actual returns. Which of those things it decides to do, if any, is still unclear. The argument for getting this legal challenge resolved soon has been that a new Congress is coming. Were the committee to pursue this in any meaningful way, it has to be done basically in the next month. And so there is a sense of urgency, certainly among congressional Democrats, to do something. But exactly how and when, we don't know. Let's discuss very briefly some of these other investigations that Trump is facing right now. Maybe you can just give us sort of a a quick rundown of what else he is facing down. So the one that's been in the news most lately is the Mar-a-Lago investigation. A lot of people will remember the FBI conducted a court-ordered search, a raid of that home in early August, and seized more than 100 documents marked classified. Prior to that, government officials had taken custody of other large batches of classified documents that were clearly kept at Mar-a-Lago for a period of time. And what we know about that investigation is the FBI has collected a lot of evidence from witnesses. As far as we can tell, a fairly small number of witnesses have actually gone into the grand jury uh, hearing evidence in that case. But a lot of the key witnesses, as best we can tell, have not gone into the grand jury. And I think that's a really important point because as a general rule, the rubber really hits the road in corruption cases when you have witnesses testifying in front of the grand jury. So, for instance, we know that there is someone who worked very closely for and under Trump who the Justice Department and the FBI considers a very critical witness who, as best we can tell, has not been into the grand jury yet. And I think you cannot even begin to make um, decisions about how strong a case you have until you've seen the main witnesses how they perform in a grand jury, how what they testify to and what they don't testify to. And so I think those are like critical things that haven't happened yet. There is another investigation that has been going on longer, and that's the investigation of Trump's role in the lead up to January 6th. That really has two elements to it. One is what was his role, if any, in conspiring to obstruct Congress through the riot that happened on January 6th. The other is more technical, and that is the investigation into what's often called the fake elector scheme, whereby a lot of Republicans with encouragement from Trump were trying to create alternate slates of electors in states where the election results were close on the theory that you might be able to essentially substitute pro-Trump electors for the electors that Joe Biden actually won in those states. So with these investigations, the ones involving the documents at Mar-a-Lago and then what involvement Trump may or may not have had in efforts to undo the results of the 2020 election, a a special counsel has been appointed to oversee these investigations. Can you remind us who he is and why he was appointed in the first place? So the newly appointed special counsel is a guy named Jack Smith. He's a longtime prosecutor. He worked as a prosecutor in New York on both the state and federal level. 
after a long time as a federal prosecutor, he became the head of the public integrity section in uh, Maine Justice in Washington, meaning he basically oversaw all public corruption cases in the country. He had that role from about the 2010 to 2014 period. And more recently, he's been working as a special prosecutor in a court that I don't think many Americans know about, which is a Kosovo war crimes court at The Hague, where he's been prosecuting cases involving alleged war crimes surrounding the war in Kosovo. Can you tell us, like, why he was appointed for this role? And maybe we can get into, you know, the process of these investigations from here. Right. So uh, Merrick Garland, in announcing the appointment, said he was doing so largely because Trump had just announced he was running again for office and because President Biden had said he intended to run for office. And uh, so this special counsel, to be clear, still reports to the attorney general. This is still a person working for the Justice Department. So he made the decision because of perceived conflict of interest relating to um, the Biden administration essentially investigating a leading political opponent of the Biden administration. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Given all of the public fighting and accusations that have been thrown around the last two special counsels, it's not clear to me that appointing a special counsel these days carries the same sort of connotation of impartiality that that it once did. In the context of current day politics, the politics of a special counsel are still going to be problematic and confrontational. And I don't think there's going to be much of a honeymoon period for this special counsel yeah. or any other special counsel. Mm. So so let's talk through the process of, of these investigations. How long are these particular probes that, that Smith is leading expected to take? And what is the role of grand juries right now in, in hearing the evidence that, that's being gathered? Right. So in both the Mar-a-Lago case and the January 6th cases, uh, grand juries have been hearing evidence uh, for months in the case of the Mar-a-Lago issue and for more than a year in the case of the January 6th investigation. So the grand juries have been working a lot on these questions. And, you know, how long the special counsel takes to do this work is really an unknowable thing in some ways. They have promised speed and quickness. I think you can only point to the last two special counsels as sort of a rough estimate. Robert Mueller is a special counsel, took about two years. So it's not really clear how how long this will take, uh, other than officials promise to move as quickly as they can. I will say there's another dynamic here that is in some ways very important, and that is the presidential election calendar. Hmm. So the primary season is going to get very intense. Yeah, and this might be premature, but I think it's worth asking, what are the possible outcomes of these investigations? Let's start with the Mar-a-Lago case. Right. So the— Justice Department is investigating several potential crimes. One is sort of the unlawful willful retention of classified documents. And in that sense, the Mar-a-Lago case is in some ways fairly clear cut. The government prosecutes on a fairly regular and consistent basis people who have access to classified documents and take those documents home with them. There was a case of an FBI analyst just a couple months ago who pleaded guilty to a set of a set of facts strikingly similar to some of the things that apparently happened at Mar-a-Lago. 
Um, but having said that, you know, a former president is a unique figure both in the political world and in the legal world of classified information in that, and this gets a little complicated down the weeds, but essentially a president never has an actual security clearance the way government officials have security clearances. And so one of the things that prosecutors have to wrestle with is if we were going to pursue a case against the former president, how do we show that he violated the law and knew he was violating the law? And so they have spent a lot of time working on, in, on the questions of intent. There are some novel factual issues and some novel legal issues that investigating a former president present, and, and that's presented in this case. Mm. The other things being investigated in the Mar-a-Lago case are obstruction and possible destruction of government records. And by that, investigators mean once Trump gets served with a subpoena demanding the return of all classified documents and does not return a large chunk of them, does that qualify under the law and under the facts as obstruction? Uh, and that's an important element of that investigation. By comparison, uh, there is an, a, an important obstruction element to the January 6th case, but it's a little more complicated because it's essentially an investigation of, of obstruction of Congress and not obstruction of an investigation. And by that, investigators mean uh, to what degree did people conspire or agree to try to prevent Congress from certifying, from formally certifying uh, Joe Biden as the next president? Mm. And so you've already seen a number of people involved in the riot charged with that form of obstruction. The other part of that investigation is, is as I mentioned before, the, the fake electors issue. As far as concrete evidence, I think one of the things to keep in mind when it comes to the fake electors scheme is that, to my knowledge, there's never been a case charged like that before. And I think that's one of the challenges prosecutors are facing, which is, okay, assume for the sake of argument, we think this was criminal conduct. We have nothing to compare it to. I think for the fake electors scheme in particular, it is hard to look for a case that would sort of give you guidance on what to do here. After the break, Devlin brings us up to speed on the January 6th Congressional Committee's efforts and Trump's legal battles outside of Washington. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Devlin, I wanted to ask about some of the investigators who are not with the Federal Justice Department who are looking into Trump's alleged actions. First, just Congress is also investigating Trump's actions on January 6th. Is is the January 6th committee working in tandem with the Justice Department? What is the latest there? So I wouldn't describe that as working in tandem. I would describe that as working on separate tracks that often end up going in the same direction. Um, so I think the J6 committee has in large part put 
additional public pressure on the Justice Department to aggressively investigate these issues. Um, and the J6 committee, I think uh, you've seen as it goes on, it's become more and more focused on Trump's conduct specifically, even as, as, as some colleagues of ours reported uh, a few days ago, even to the frustration of some of the January 6th committee staffers who would like to look at, look at some of the other issues like, you know, law enforcement intelligence failures and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I also think that, you know, the, the committee, while putting pressure on on the Justice Department, it, that, that work is also a double-edged sword because whatever the Justice Department ends up charging, they're going to have to be able to argue to a judge and a jury that, that those charges are not the result of, to put it bluntly, some Democratic lawmakers on the Hill. And then what about investigations into Trump's business practices? So uh, aside from questions about you know, his time as president and what he did or did not do with classified documents or his role with January 6th. New York is also looking into his business practices, right? What's going on there? Right. So there's a trial uh, in New York state court about basically the tax business practices of the Trump organization. The key witness of that trial is a guy named Alan Weisselberg. He has pleaded guilty, but basically said in his testimony, that Trump didn't tell him to do it. The tax crimes that he engaged in were things he did at his own volition. That has gotten a lot of tension because, you know, obviously it's about Trump and the Trump organization, but the trial itself does not seem to touch much on Trump the person. And to be honest, the the, the stakes there, I think, are quite low mm. in terms of money. I think the organization, the company itself, faces a potential fine of like $1.6 million, which seems to be only slightly more than one year of uh, Weisselberg's, you know, salary and bonus. So I don't see that trial as being financially consequential. It could very well be consequential reputationally or politically. There is one more investigation I'd like to ask you about. The one about Trump's attempts to change the 2020 election results in Georgia. Can you remind us what's going on with that one? Right. So in that instance, uh, the Fulton County District Attorney has been investigating efforts to, uh, depending who you ask, change the vote count in that state uh, so that instead of Joe Biden winning, it would have been Trump winning. And there's, you know, a famous recorded phone call in which Trump himself pressures uh, Georgia officials. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... Eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes, which is one more than we have. That at the time was a very alarming phone call when it when it became public knowledge. And that is, I think, at the heart of that investigation. It's unclear if that will lead to uh, criminal charges against anyone. But I think it's another thing that we have to keep close tabs on because the potential consequences of that investigation, if a prosecutor decided to file charges, could be huge. And I'm curious, do we have any idea how much of a financial burden these lawsuits are for the former president? And, you know, on that same token for taxpayers for paying for these investigations, or at least some of them, it would seem. Well, it's interesting. Since he stopped being president, we can see that a lot of his legal fees are being paid by the RNC. Hmm. And he also has a PAC uh, political action committee that raised a great deal of money that can also be applied to, you know, these legal fees. So I, I, I don't think 
I don't think there's much evidence to support the notion that these investigations are costing Trump personally much money. When it comes to the current investigations, we can't really tell how much uh, the January 6th investigation costs or the Mar-a-Lago investigation costs. We can say that the January 6th investigation is the largest investigation that the Justice Department has ever done in terms of the number of defendants. Um, That's a case that will probably surpass 1,000 defendants uh, before it's done. But it's so large for that very reason, it's actually hard to calculate what the cost of it actually is. The only comparison point we can really point to is that Robert Mueller's investigation cost somewhere around $30 million by the time it was done. In context, that's within a a much larger Justice Department budget. That is $30 billion. So I don't think many people at the Justice Department think of it as being a particularly expensive investigation. However, you know, $30 million is a lot of money. And so uh, to critics of these investigations, um, they're always going to point to costs like that and say it's not worth it. And when should we expect to see some findings on any of these investigations? What, what, what are you going to be looking for next? Right. So a few things. I think one of the things I'm, I'm looking for is the Fulton County DA's office in Georgia. The prosecutor there has said uh, she is determined to, to make a decision soon, although we never know quite what soon means. Yeah, soon isn't an exact measurement of time. <laughs> I will say, covering <laughs> covering courts and the law soon means literally nothing to me. Um, <laughs> but she seems to have put down the most of a, uh, a ticking clock on, on her own work. I also think, you know, at some point, the Mar-a-Lago investigation is going to be putting more people into the grand jury, I, I expect. That investigation, even though it started much later than the January 6th investigation, has proceeded much more quickly than the January 6th investigation. So if it keeps up that pace, uh, we could see a decision on that well before we see a decision on the January 6th issues. But, you know, I think one of the things that people often fail to grasp about federal investigations is that they are very, very slow. Within the Justice Department, within the FBI, officials believe they're working very, very quickly. And that is just not how they are perceived on the outside. Mm -hmm. And that is an endless tension point for all the main players in this drama especially as the 2024 election cycle is creeping up. Exactly. Devlin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Devlin Barrett covers the FBI and Justice Department for The Post. Sharla Freeland produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.